0: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
1: In your life, there's this going on, there's a battle. My fallen humanist has impulses and desires and emotions that are gonna conflict with the author of the Bible, who according to the the scriptures lives in me, not spatially, but relationally. He lives in such a tight way with me that when I have an impulse and a a desire, it's gonna fight with that. And the question is, who's gonna win?
0: Emotions can be tricky things. They're an important part of how God made us, and yet they tend to get out of control and create problems. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is showing how God's Word can help us keep our emotions in check when they don't line up with God's will. We're jumping into a helpful study from 2 Samuel called, When Feelings Are King, and a message from Pastor Mike titled, How to Keep Your Emotions from Ruling Your Life. Well, let's get started. If
1: you're human, uh, you live with something that is powerful and often unpredictable and potentially devastating in your life. You see, when God made us this composite uh, person, Adam, he gave him three distinctive elements to his personality. He gave him an intellect, the ability to think and to reason and to cognitively process information. He also gave Adam the uh, ability to choose, his volition. He could make decisions between uh, courses of action and could decide to do this as opposed to that. But he also included in the composite that he had made that reflects his own nature, he gave him the capacity to feel, to have emotions, to be able to experience the strong and impulsive passions of the human experience, to experience love and hatred, sorrow and happiness, to feel in a sentient way all the powerful emotions that uh, really drive a lot of aspects of our lives. And that is part of the problem. They often drive and dictate our lives. Now, God created them to round out our experience. And you think about life without them, uh, even though they're potentially dangerous. And we say, well, well, shouldn't we try to just uh, abolish them? No, we shouldn't abolish them. What would life be like without without our emotions? Now, we'd be like, uh, you know, Dr. Spock, I guess, you know, without... uh, Emotions, you know, just cognitively processing options and then deciding. But God has put into the mix our emotions, and they are important. But usually they play the role, if we are using them properly, as responders to decisions we make. They follow up our decisions, they give us feelings that uh, help us either to enjoy or to regret decisions that we make. But oftentimes they control our decisions. And when they do, our life can completely unravel. If I called you up one at a time to kind of give your experience with this, you could probably testify to situations in your life where your emotions, and your passions and your desires have caused you great pain. In some cases, they've caused scarring and the deterioration of relationships and have caused all kinds of catastrophic problems. All you to do is look at a guy like King David and see that his passions, when he should have controlled them, he allowed decisions to be made based on his desires and his emotions. And instead of being disciplined with his emotions and choosing to do what is right based on what he thought, he chose to do what he felt. And oftentimes he found himself becoming someone who stood on a rooftop and coveted his neighbor's wife, breaking the 10th command and then choosing to inquire of her and bring her to his house and breaking the seventh command and becoming an adulterer. And also because of his passion and his guilt and his fear and his anxieties, trying to cover that up by having her husband in a roundabout way, being fully responsible for his death. The passions of David's life, though we see him as a great example for many things in the Christian life, he's a terrible example when it comes to controlling his feelings when it comes to making decisions based on what is cognitively and truthfully right. Instead, we see David making decisions based on his feelings all too often. And today's example in this episode in David's life is no different. It is, though, by the way, a much more culturally acceptable way to make decisions, one I think that you and I can readily identify with. Take a look at it with me in Second Samuel chapter 18. We've seen David fall into lust and adultery and murder based on passions he did not control. Today, we see him make much more subtle mistakes, but equally as devastating. We see him making foolish decisions. Here's one, for instance, as he finds himself in the fortress of Mahanaim, east of the Jordan River, having been kicked out of the country by his own son, Absalom. He had, as you remember, taken over the city of Jerusalem And he sent David and his men scurrying out of town. And thanks to his friend who was working for him in the court of Absalom, he was bought some time and actually got to a place where he could defend himself and organize his troops. And that's what's taking place here in the first few verses. David musters the men who are with him and he starts appointing leaders and getting ready for a battle with his son. Now he knows it's inevitable and he knows that they're coming. But he's got some specific instructions for his military leaders. If you look at the bottom of verse 4 regarding his son, it said, The king stood beside the gate with all the men that marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. And the king commanded the three commanders, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, to do this. Note it carefully, underline it. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. His decision in this battle was to tell his men, if you go out there and fight, just be nice to Absalom. Don't be mean to him. Don't hurt him. Don't put him in harm's way. I'm fearful for his well-being. Be nice to him. Be gentle with Absalom. Now, the first response I have when I hear a story like that is, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you know your son's going to be potentially in harm's way in some battle, I mean, your heart's going to say, hey, hey, I don't want my son hurt. I don't want my son to be hurt. And as a matter of fact, if I can say anything or counsel anyone to protect my son, that makes sense. I don't want my son hurt. Well, that is an emotional decision. And it's an emotional decision that seems to be, in some other setting, perhaps a very appropriate emotional decision based on a love that a father has for a son. But I'm going to propose for you today that that's the wrong decision to make. That that's a very ungodly decision to make. And let me tell you why. Remember what Absalom is doing. He is the leader of an insurrection against his father. He's the leader of a rebellion that's already in the wake of his takeover begun to see other people who are innocent bystanders harmed in the process. By the time this chapter is over, 20,000 men will lose their lives because Absalom decided to abandon his place as the son of the king, wanting to be the king. He is a rebel. He's an insurrectionist. He's the leader of a coup d'etat, and he needs to have, according to the book of Deuteronomy, justice served on his life, and unfortunately, when you do that against the anointed king, you have just violated God's laws, one that is so serious that it requires the life of the insurrectionist. So, he's already lost the rights to live according to his actions. Not only that, add to this, as you might remember, that he was the murderer of his brother. Do you remember that? He took justice in his own hands while his brother was at a banquet. He killed him. Now, I understand the motives behind it, but nevertheless, he was out of line and committed murder. And the Bible's really clear. If you commit murder, if you kill someone and you do it with malice and a forethought, that's the statement in the, in the pages of Scripture then your blood is required of you for justice's sake. So there is two strikes against him, two capital offenses. Thirdly, you might remember, as we saw not too long ago, he took the advice of one of David's old traitor friends and raped all of David's former concubines that remained in Jerusalem. And he put them on the top of the palace, he pitched a tent, and he raped them. To have sex with your father's wives in the scripture is a capital offense. And rape, of course, is equated in the Bible as a capital offense. So he's got four major violations that are absolutely in God's perspective and from God's point of view, intolerable. His life was demanded for being an insurrectionist. His life was demanded for uh, uh, murdering his brother. His life was demanded for rape. And his life was demanded for having sexual relationships with his father's wife. So four times over, God is looking at Absalom and saying, this man deserves to die. Now, the problem with this whole scenario is David just isn't just some guy off the street. He is the leader of the country. And in that day, that makes you the chief justice. It makes you the sovereign king. It makes you the one who is not only supposed to uh, uh, make the laws, but you're to enforce them. Oh, it was God's law that we were supposed to uphold, but he is the one who is in God's mind responsible for enforcing justice in the kingdom. And instead of enforcing justice, David is saying, I love my kid too much to do that to him. Oh, I know perhaps he's done things deserving of death, but I'm going to overlook those. Oh, David had carried out justice in the lives of others. You might remember stories of people coming in his presence and saying that they had dishonored the anointed one of Israel. In that case, it was Saul he was worried about, and David struck them down dead right there. Well, his son was doing the very same thing, was poising his life and all of his arrows at his own father trying to kill him. And David's response is, oh, I just love Johnny so much, I couldn't see any bad thing happening to him out there in the war. Could you guys be really nice to him? Oh, it's understandable But it's out of context. And I say it's out of context because his emotions and his concern for his son is on a crash course with what the Bible says ought to happen to someone who's an insurrectionist, a murderer, a rapist, and and an incestuous sexual partner of his father's wives. All of those demand death. And David is saying, don't kill my son. Don't even hurt him. There's a problem here. Natural, normal, fatherly affections for a child had just contradicted God's word when he said and made a decision, be nice to my son. Question. You and I fall into that same dilemma where my desires for people that I love, perhaps my own children, let's talk about Orange County's favorite idol, okay, for a few seconds, our children, okay? And I don't say that with glee. It is, you recognize, the number one idol in our culture. And that means that we put our kids before God all the time, and I'll show you how we do it. Much like David, we say, I don't want Johnny to be hurt. I want Johnny to have what he wants. I want Johnny to have the best possible life, and I'm willing to violate God's rules to do it. Do we ever do that? Does our culture do that? We do it all the time. I don't feel comfortable with God's plan of discipline. I don't like that. It seems too harsh. I love Johnny so much I couldn't do that. So we create our own forms of discipline. You know, uh, I I, I love Johnny so much. I can't give Johnny what he really needs. I'm too busy giving him what he wants. I'm willing to fudge on his spiritual upbringing and his training because I'm so busy indulging him in all his interests—his sports or his music or drama or whatever it is. I am willing to set aside what God wants for my child and what God requires of my child because, as a dad or a mom, I'm just too soft because my heart bleeds for my kid. Now, am I saying it's wrong for you to love your kids? You should love your kids. Absolutely. But when your kids and your affection for your kids in some way starts to collide with God's will for your life as a parent or an authority figure, you are going to have to make a choice. The problem is, David, I'm sure, looked the other way when it came to what God required of the insurrectionist, the murderer, the rapist, and the guy involved in incest. David just said, well, I don't want to see that. And we often do the same thing. Put it down this way on your outline. If we're ever going to free ourselves from the tyranny of our emotions calling the shots in our lives. We have to, number one, always compare our feelings with God's word. Always compare our feelings with God's word. David's feelings were screaming at him. Don't let Absalom get hurt. What did God think? You want to know what God, think? Look, you want to know what God thought? Look across the page at chapter 17, verse 14. Chapter 17, verse 14, God gives his opinion. Bottom of the verse, it says Yahweh had determined to frustrate the advice that was actually trying to kill David in order. Here's the purpose clause. Why was God involved? To bring disaster on Absalom. Translation, to give Absalom what he finally deserved that his father was unwilling to give him. Is this a problem? Man, it's a problem. It's a problem all over the Bible. Do you remember when when Samuel laid there and heard from God early in the first book of Samuel? Samuel. Heard God's voice kept going and saying, Eli, what do you want? What do you want? He says, no, that's God talking. And then God finally talks to, to Samuel and gives him a revelation as the prophet, as the young up and coming prophet of the nation. Do you remember the prophecy that, that God gave Samuel? Any of you remember at Sunday school graduates, What did he say? It was about who? Eli. And what was the problem? Eli was a bad dad. He wasn't willing to discipline his kids. And here's basically what God says to Samuel. God says, I'm going to do something that is going to turn everybody's ear on edge. I'm going to do something that's going to make everybody's ears tingle. I'm going to do something in Israel that everyone's going to be talking about. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring disaster on Eli's sons for being so wicked. And I'm going to bring disaster on Eli because he, here's how he put it, failed to control or restrain his children. Why do you think Eli failed to restrain his children's behavior? Same reason David doesn't want Absalom hurt in the middle of this battle. I love him too much, right? I just, I, I, can't, I can't see any harm coming to him. Now, most of us are not faced with that. I hope you're not faced with that, a kid that needs to be in jail or a kid that needs to, you know, be, be in San Quentin or something, but we're dealing with kids, aren't we? Most of us, if we're parents and we're talking about this issue, that our heart is just dying to serve and love, but in reality, we're going to have to, in times, restrain that motivation so that we can say in love, sometimes I'm gonna have to do things that are uncomfortable. And so what I'm feeling in my heart needs to be governed by what God's word has to say. And by the way, David had a requirement according to the book of Deuteronomy to write himself a copy of the scrolls. He was supposed to put on a scroll the law of God and he was supposed to read it and he was supposed to keep it with him and he was supposed to meditate on it so that here's how Deuteronomy put it. He could learn to revere the Lord and keep all the commands that God had given. You know, God calls us to the same thing. In the New Testament, we're called to, to be diligent or to study, to show ourselves approved to God. A workman doesn't need to be ashamed who can rightly handle the word of truth. How important is it? Colossians 3 says, "What the, the word of Christ ought to richly dwell in us. Do you know Bible study is critically important? If for nothing else, so that I can keep my emotions in check and know how to feel, and some of you will object, how can I tell myself how to feel? Well, I don't know that I can tell myself exactly in every situation how to feel, but I can certainly tell my emotions, you can't have a part in this decision. And that's what I have to do. You can't have a part in this decision right now because I know your desires are gonna cry out against God's desires. Let me put it this way. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five, God puts it for us in real basic terms. He says there's a problem in humanity. There's a problem for sinful people whose intellect, emotion and will have been damaged by sin. They've been infected by this problem. And even as Christians, we can have our our, our minds renewed and we can have our volition guided by the spirit. But but we've got a part of our humanity that still has emotional impulses and desires that are going to try to get in on every decision we make. Look at verse 17. If you have an NIV, it reads something like this. For the sinful nature, this is Galatians 5.17. It's translating a little word sarke in the, in the Greek. It's just, it's the word flesh. And, and they try to give it some sense here because it doesn't make much sense because my flesh, you know, it's just, you know, it's just skin. It's just stuff. But in reality, when you see this concept of flesh used in the New Testament, it's usually referring to my, my fallen humanity, my, my sinful humanness. And he's saying our our sinful humanness, our our fallen humanity, it, and here's here's an emotional word, isn't it? Look at the word, desires. That's a sentient word. That's a word that reflects what I feel. It feels things and pulls me in directions which are contrary to the Spirit. That's the author of the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit has a certain plan for my life. And it may be in the case of David to to administer justice in his son's life, but his feelings are in are in, in, in conflict with that. They are contrary to the Spirit. And amazingly enough, as if we needed to say it, the spirit is going to desire what is contrary to my flesh. They are, here's a fun word, in conflict with each other. If you're a Christian, welcome you know, to the war zone. Because in your life, there's this going on. There's a battle. My fallen humanist has impulses and desires and emotions that are going to conflict with the author of the Bible. Who, according to the, to the scriptures, lives in me. Not spatially, but relationally. He lives in such a tight way with me that when I have an impulse and a desire, it's gonna fight with that. And the question is, who's gonna win? When I know that my kids, for instance, want things, but I know they need things, and my heart says, give them what they want, but the word says, give them what they need, Or when I need to discipline them and I say, I can't bear to see Johnny crying because I've disciplined. So, you know, I'm torn between God's word and what it says I ought to do and what my heart says I should do. And I have to make the decision. That's so fundamental to the Christian life. And the text says they're in conflict so that you do not do. Look at the bottom of verse 17. What you want. Whatever picture you had of the Christian life, if it it included somebody whistling and and butterflies and, and garden paths and all these wonderful things, that ain't the Christian life. Because you sign up for the Christian life, here's what happens. God invades your life, becomes your new roommate, who wants your life to be increasingly more godly and righteous, which means that all the things that the Bible says are going to be laid on your heart. He is going to start to give you this this passion and this commitment to do what's right. But here's my emotions, and here's my heart, and here's my desires that come from my flesh that aren't always right, and I'm going to have to say no. But the only way I'm going to be able to affirm this with some objectiveness is to constantly be looking at the word. Because guess what? The spirit of God that lives in me never contradicts the word that he wrote. And so if I really want to see it in black and white and get it out of the area of the subjective, I get God's word in front of me every day. Just like the king was supposed to write the law on a scroll and keep it with him and read it. We're called, as Joshua 1 says, to keep the word in our mouth and in our minds and meditate on it day and night. And if you do and don't turn from the right or the left, then you'll find success. What's that mean? That if I'm really checking every decision against God's word, my feelings are going to lose a lot of the time. Do sometimes they concur? They do. But often they, there's that word, middle of verse 17, that's a good word to circle. They conflict. There's a conflict. There's a battle. There's a problem. Now, this can be illustrated as, you know, just in basic, basic ways. It's like getting up this morning. But me, for instance, this morning when it was dark and I didn't want to get out of bed and it was nice and warm in bed, but it was cold out, you know, all of that stuff that runs through your, your, your emotions. You know, don't, you know, hit, hit the snooze, stay a little longer, all of that. There's just a simple, basic illustration of the, of the, the conflicts we face every day. I need to get up. I should get up. I got to go to church. I got to preach a sermon and I really want to stay here. That conflict takes place in every area from sexual temptation to greed to pride to raising our kids to governing my heart's desires and my concern and affections toward my wife toward my children toward my church toward my co-workers toward my employees all of that is all of that is uh, is part of the mix all of that is the fundamental issue and the only way I'm going to succeed is if I spend time every morning in God's word affirming what the spirit is going to constantly be reminding me of all day, here's what God wants, here's what my desires are. If I feel a certain way, don't move until you check it against the Bible. Because most of us, if we were to peel back all the layers in our life, you could look at the decisions we make throughout the day, and you could probably take most of those and say, I base them on what I feel. And God wants us to base them on what is right. And I'm only gonna know that if I got the word in my life and it's part of my daily routine. Let's just take a little side note. Is that a part of your daily routine? Is it? It's more than just reading a few verses before you go to sleep at night. Is the Bible a part of your routine? If you're a Christian, it doesn't make sense if it's not. It's got to be. This ain't for pastors and monks and, and you know, weird religious people that can't get a job, you know? This is for people like you who are in the workplace, in the marketplace, leading families and, and being influential in your communities. It's for you to be sure to sort through what's right and wrong when my emotions scream for one thing and I have to figure out what really God would want me to do.
0: You're listening to Focal Point and a message called, How to Keep Your Emotions from Ruling Your Life from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like to access Mike's study notes or listen to the complete message, just go to focalpointradio.org. We're glad you're with us today as we study the wisdom of God's Word. You know, our goal at Focal Point is to help you understand the scriptures and equip you with a strong foundation to help you respond biblically to the inevitable emotional ups and downs of life. Focal Point is heard on hundreds of radio stations and outlets across the United States and is accessible worldwide through the Internet and the Focal Point mobile app. And this program is freely available because broadcasting and production costs are funded by listeners just like you who share our desire to help others understand God's Word. And if you're among those who support this program financially, I'd like to express our deep gratitude, because your giving enables others to hear the truth and gain biblical wisdom. To show our gratitude for your gift today, we'd like to send you a helpful book titled The Pursuit of Excellence by Dr. George Sweeting. In this book, Dr. Sweeting explores the nine marks of Christians who pursue and attain excellence, and we hope it will encourage and inspire you to strive for excellence in your walk with the Lord. So make a donation today by calling us at 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And when you contact us, you might also consider joining our team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support allows us to plan for the future with confidence. So please sign up to become a Focal Point Partner today when you call 888 320 or go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Druey, inviting you to join us again Tuesday as Pastor Mike continues this message called How to Keep Your Emotions from Ruling Your Life. Come back for some practical tips and the conclusion of our message right here on Focal Point.
1: Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again
0: tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.